Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We are joined by our very special guest, Addy Asmani, to speak with us about web performance. Addy, you want to give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Sure. That's a deep question. Who am I? Um, I uh, so my name is Adi Osmani. I, uh, I'm an engineering manager working on the Chrome team. And uh, I lead up a speed team focused on web performance. We try mm-hmm. to keep the web fast. All right. Specifically to Chrome. But it's, it's all one big happy <laughs> web set. We care about the open web, keeping the web fast everywhere. Great. That's awesome. We love that. You didn't say your happy hour beverage. My happy hour beverage is gin and tonic. Right on, which we are actually drinking right now. And I think this is the first guest to ask us for gin and tonic. So well done. Thank you. Yeah, I feel. All right. Well, let's go around and give introductions of today's panelists. Stacey, you want to start it off? Sure. I'm Stacey London. I'm a senior front end engineer at Atlassian. Uh, I'm Mars Julian. I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix. Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. I'm Ryan Eklum, a software engineer at Netflix as well. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. I'm an over 40 software engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Old software engineer. (laughs) In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Fast. So if we say the word fast, faster, whatever it is, we will all start taking drinks. Fastly. (laughs) Yeah. I think we already owe two drinks, by the way. No, we just started now. You can't start ahead before you tell people. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump in. Why is web performance important? Why is it improving the speed of your w- websites and applications actually important? Obviously, Addy being really a, must be important. You're you're working on this. I hope so. Job security gotta gotta fix <laughs> fix speed. Um, so humans don't like waiting for things. We don't like waiting in line. If you know you've you've ordered a pizza, you don't like waiting for that. So anything we can do to make sure that users are getting satisfaction pretty early on is important. And it's like it's important for engineering teams. It's important for brands too because those users will come back if they've got a good experience with your site. Yeah, and I think it's it's becoming actually more and more. We won't wait at all. Like if you think back to the web, I don't know, in the '90s or even early 2000, it's it was slow, like compared to now, it's like we expect things immediate. Gratification needs to be there right away. So I think it becomes more and more important. I also think of the, I'm sure even dealing with Chrome is you're dealing with a global audience who doesn't have the fastest internet. Cheers. 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 It's early. Yeah. I got that one in fast. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Remember the days of downloading one MP3 and it took like 30 minutes on 56K? No, sorry. It was like 33.6 and then we got upgraded. Oh, yes. And you're just like, ah, oh, the web's so slow. Now we just expect things instantaneously. Could you imagine waiting that long? Like you'd wait like days, weeks for some, like a file to download. That was craziness. I remember being a teenager and waiting like two days for downloading a yeah. Britney Spears music video. That was great. <laughs> and then and then if the file got corrupted, you're like, no, I just waited so long and I should have tried a different file. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully you got that video. I got that video in the end. Yeah. <laughs> but I think largely we've seen we've seen what the fast internet looks like. We're like we've seen here <laughs> we go. We've seen sites with web sockets and that properly utilize caching and all the good techniques. So when you hit a site that's slow, you're like, well, either they're lazy, like the site or the brand, they don't care about performance, or like something's wrong with the internet. But it's usually something's wrong with the site and 
I don't know. It's like offensive as a user. I'm like, you yeah. can't put a little bit of extra effort into yeah. making the site performant. Yeah. And performance is like, it's a spectrum. It's not just the same for everybody. You're going to have folks that are, you know, based in middle America or NBU where they're not going to have the most powerful phones. They're going to have, you know, slower CPUs, potentially slower network conditions. And so it gets even more important to make sure we're shipping down stuff that's actually going to deliver value pretty quickly to people. Yeah, it's kind of even to your point when we had first mentioned about working on Chrome and you're like, it's the open web and caring about it. But it's true. It's like you're really we're trying to build solutions that work for everyone. The beauty of the Internet is everyone should have access to it and be able to have a great experience. And so performance is really important in that is that we're thinking about the person on a low end device or on a high device or, you know, some quick Internet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, ultimately, and we, we've definitely talked about this. We talk about performance every couple of months or so. But like, ultimately, the only currency you have in life is time. Like that, that's it. It's a finite amount, and so no one wants to waste time like waiting for a website to load. Or I'm trying to pay my bill and I'm in the hurry. Like I don't want for the slow like power bill website to load. Like we should make things faster because we should value time. That's pretty much all we have. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> I've got a bit of a question here too. Is this something that's ever done? Like, are we ever done improving performance? I don't think so. Because everything, unless you're done developing your site and you're never adding another line of code to it, but every new feature you add could degrade performance if you don't like have something in place to make sure that you're not doing that and, and caring about that. So I don't think so. Well, I think also beyond just like adding new features, like we're in competition with other things that are also speeding up. So, you know, the networks that we're using, they're getting faster. They're getting, oh, darn it. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting better at um, delivering websites to you. And also our hardware is speeding up and we're competing with native apps that are a lot quicker we'll set it again (laughs) that are a lot quicker than the web sometimes so we have a lot of other things that are increasing in speed and we i think we become almost even more and more impatient as that happens so it's not just the technology but it's also kind of like a behavioral like a behavioral issue yeah and i think to speaking to the business side that came up a little bit too is like you're competing with other businesses too that if i'm maybe browsing a site to buy a t-shirt and three companies have it and the one is just like not loading i'm i'm on to the next one i'm not sitting around waiting i've time is precious and i'm going to move on so i think that's really important for businesses to really put this at an utmost important piece for their customers yeah well we what we often find uh, when we're talking to teams is that performance is is very often an afterthought folks like they they only realize it's a problem when things are on fire or their users are complaining and it's not always something that's baked in from the very start of the project uh and i'd love to see that kind of shift in our industry of people starting to care about performance from the very get-go because it's easier to sort of set yourself those constraints that you have to have the whole team work in early on but it's much harder to set them like after the fact when you're already kind of like shipping down a ton of code, tons of resources, and it's it's slow. Yeah, it becomes almost like really difficult to go back. It's like thinking about that ahead of time. I even think about that like things like accessibility. If you're thinking about that from the start, it's so much easier to deal with issues right then versus like, oh, I've got to go back and think about that. And performance is really important to think about that from the start. There's things like performance budgets. Like, is that something that you would advocate for? Because you know, you're actually thinking about that right from the start is like every little feature that we add or every piece of complexity that we add is going to cut into that budget. And if you don't set that, you're just going to keep going down the making it slower. It's almost like you have to automate that and make put that into the team's like entire dev process so that 
um, there's a tool telling you something or giving you information because it is quite easy for a lot of organizations for pressure to ship to override you know, doing that performance tweak. And so maybe if you build, yeah, build it in your definition of done or whatever you call it to like say this feature is ready to go, I think that's hugely important. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think that uh, one thing, you know, engineering teams love trying to like set these numbers that we try to target, but it's really important that we also tie performance back to business metrics and business goals. Because if, if, if you really want the business to buy into this idea of, you know, staying on top of web perf, it has to be demonstrated that like it can impact revenue, conversions, all the things that they care about. And that's not something that we see a lot of teams doing these at the moment. Yeah, I think it's super important to measure it. Like I think that's where it really comes down to. And if you can put it back to a business goal, that's really, really important. I mean, even at Netflix, we've done a lot of that where we've A-B tested. We do that with a lot of features, but we've also done that with something that we've maybe reduced the payload size how does that impact something in the business metric it does it maybe but like trying to understand how big of an impact is the performance side of it and i think yeah you can get a lot more buy-in from people not just engineering is like oh this actually impacts the business now we need to really think through this and be thoughtful of it yeah i mean the recent test we just did on tvy with um highlighting states even in uh, on-screen keyboard um we took away uh, one state, which just, you know, milliseconds per keystroke, but actually had a really big impact on people's interaction with the pages, which ended up giving us more signups, which ended up giving us more revenue. So it's huge. So I'll say like, uh, I guess like a corollary to all these is there is such thing as over-optimizing, uh, which is something to be wary of too. Performance budgets are great because you're saying like, once we hit this target, once we hit this finish line, like we're good. Because I've seen plenty of people waste hours and weeks chasing dragons trying to like squeak out like let me shave off another half millisecond but in reality that doesn't make a difference so it's important to know like where the benchmark is once you hit it make sure you don't go under it but not over optimize for performance because you can spend forever trying to like tweak remove like half a kilobyte of code and that doesn't actually do anything it could you don't know it could that's why you need performance that's why you to need say, to metric tie yeah. them to yeah. business metrics to say like here's what's important here's what's not important also to performance and also to that point about over optimization it kind of goes into perceived performance as well because you can make sure that your site speed stays the same but you can make the experience better for the user so they know something is happening or they get a bit of information and then as you as that's loading you load something else in the background and you kind of progressively load the page and that's something we've seen a lot of I think is like perceived performance is becoming more and more of a design is incorporated into design more and more or like you've uh, optimized it so much that like processing some sort of bank transaction is so fast that people are like oh no I don't trust it and you have to like add <laughs> a spinner back in and like right. make it seem slower to like so there's like there's some weird there has to be some feedback there because you're like wait did it actually work did I send that transfer <laughs> like that's important and, and it could actually be too fast at that point I uh, that's a good way to put it cheers oh yeah <laughs> cheers good catch I think that speaks a little bit to how we've been uh, viewing the evolution of the loading experience over the last couple of years so over on the metric side of things uh We've been increasingly on the Chrome team um, and focused on user happiness metrics. So breaking down the loading experience into uh, kind of three or four key stages. Uh, is it happening? Is it uh, useful? And is it usable? So is it happening is, hey, is this page even actually responding with anything at all? 
Like, I don't know if that's a spinner, it could be a placeholder, some skeleton screens. Um, is it useful as that point where you've de delivered like some valuable content? So these are like some text. And then um, is it usable as that point when the page is entirely interactive? And we're trying to encourage developers to like think about that entire journey. And it's not just like a fixed point in time. It's like lots of other little things that we can improve. Yeah. And actually that brings me to like a question of how do each of you approach if you have a slow website or application what do you do for like what is your approach to debugging it improving it what's your go-to tools what do you think about when I, I come to you and I'm like this page is slow improve it edge dev tools that's my go-to every time edge mm -hmm. I still use IE <laughs> I, I was gonna say Safari Firebug Safari yeah, still. hey Firebug was good let's not hate on Firebug <laughs> Firebug was good no, Firebug's the gateway that got us to where we are today, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, first up, like, always, always is measure. Because, like, slow is completely relative. You're like, oh, that feels slow. That means nothing. Like, you have to measure. You have to say, like, what are the metrics you care about? Uh, time to interactive is usually one of the top ones. Time to render is another one. Um, I'm sure there's more, but and more business-specific ones. But first thing you have to do is measure. As our uh, colleague once said, Michael Paulson, he's like, you can't look at code and tell if it's slow or not. Like, it's impossible. You can like get hints, but you'll never be able to be like, oh, this is slow code. You have to measure it and then figure out what to optimize. I really like currently working on a scroll performance uh, issue um, and the FPS meter in Chrome DevTools is awesome for that. Uh, I really like that. Didn't work on it, but I'm happy to take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> One workflow that uh, I've been encouraging people to think about recently is uh, measure, optimize, and monitor. I think that I totally agree with the measurement part. Um, you can't optimize what you haven't measured. Uh, the monitor part is important because we don't we don't see too many folks like actually continuously measuring performance after they've deployed like a change. And there's so much that you can do. Like Netflix is famous for the amount of A/B testing that it does. I think that um, the amount of monitoring work you can do just to understand like did the fix actually solve the problem long term? Um, are other patches coming in actually? you know, undoing all the work you did or not. Those things are important to take a look at, too. I really like your point about monitoring, too, because we're kind of developing in a vacuum, and I feel like a lot of us are developing in a vacuum. We work in offices that have um, high-speed internet, and we're working on generally, like, higher-speed devices. And if you're monitoring, you can kind of understand, like, did your fix work for all of your users or just a subset of them? And you can improve from there. So there's the over-optimization on the one hand, but then there's also the continuing to optimize for just a diverse set of devices and, and internet connectivity. Yeah, one thing that we've started to do is to fire off um, AppDex uh, metrics to Datadog. So we have dashboards that actually will show like over time, you know, whether your AppDex is going up or down um, for various pages on our site. And that's been pretty cool to see, like actually have measurement over time. Yeah, it helps monitor it. And so that you're not having to always think about it like you should be, but it's like you also have the computer tell you and it's not just some person's sole job to think about that. Can someone give like a high level of the kind of important metrics that I think as web developers, we should all know. Because I think we talk about them sometimes, but we never actually define them. I would say that going back to that idea of user-centric metrics, um, there's like, so for the, uh, is it happening? We tend to take a look at things like first paint, first contentful paint. Is there actually anything that's been painted to the screen? Um, is it useful? Like, is partly first contentful paint? There's other metrics like first meaningful paint. And then 
Is it usable, tends to be time to interactive uh, in the lab and then in the field, things like first input delay. So if a user tries to tap on anything uh, in the experience, are they actually likely to get any response to it early on? What about PSI? I think that that was one I was starting to dig into to, to like see if that was something that we should be measuring. So recently in PSI, we've actually been shifting um, a lot of the UI and, and the engine behind it to use Lighthouse. So the current version of PSI is using Lighthouse. Uh, and we've uh, aligned on, I think, FCP, for the field at least, for uh, FCP and first input delay to be the two metrics for the field that we recommend folks take a look at. In general, like we try to suggest a set of metrics that we think work for folks that don't really know what to take a look at. But we also know that like businesses have got their own custom metrics that might reflect what you think is the most important thing. Like I'm sure Netflix also have their own custom. Oh, even even just within various pieces of the product, there might be something that is really important to one team versus another team. And it's like thinking about what's your core metric, what's your secondary metric, and thinking about that is like, that's more of the business side of things for sure. Sorry, can you clarify what PSI is? Yeah, sorry. I was like, we should, de we should <laughs> define these acronyms. Counts square inch, right? <laughs> Perceived speed index. <laughs> Um, which in theory is, uh, well, in theory, it's there's science behind it, right? Like yeah. it's it's how the user feels about a page being available to them and, and ready to be interacted with. What about APIs? I mean, some of the browsers are getting a lot better with having performance APIs built into the browser. What are some that you've found useful? I think that it depends on if we're talking about first load or repeat load. For repeat load, we're seeing a lot of sites um, take advantage of service workers and service worker type architectures to benefit from like static resource caching, um, architectures where maybe instead of going back to the network every single time for the UI for your experience, if there are enough common pieces across each page or each route, you just cache those locally. And then you've got like a relatively fast experience whenever the user's coming back. Uh, Twitter Lite is doing something similar at the moment. So whenever you go to them, like you'll see a really quick paint of the UI and then the content is being refreshed from the network. Um, so that's, that's a good API to be checking out. Uh, we've seen service workers sort of increase in terms of browser support over the last year. Mobile Safari finally has Yeah, it. I was just going to say, I'm like, we have to call it Mobile Safari. <laughs> we've, we've ragged on that one for a while. But I, I mean, it, it, some of these APIs are so great, and it's amazing to have them. But until they are really supported across the browsers, it's almost hard to even leverage them, which is kind of disappointing. And so, yeah, Service Worker is a perfect example. We've had them for a long time in most browsers. And then having Safari and mobile Safari really get, have them, that was that was a huge jump. I think that for first load, uh, the biggest bottleneck we still see is probably around JavaScript. Like, I'm going to put on my Alex Russell hat now. It can sometimes be easy to pick stacks where you know we're not always measuring the impact of the choices we're making on phones. Um, and that can sometimes lead to uh, user experiences that take you know 20, 30 seconds for their interactive without you as a dev even realizing it. So we we try to suggest that folks take a look at sort of take, take a look at tools like Lighthouse, uh, analyze you know how, how well users are able to interact with your experience and try to only ship stuff that you need um, when you need it when it comes to the JavaScript side of things. That, that is a good point too is like if you don't necessarily need, I mean, we talk about it sometimes even on episodes, it's like if you don't need the framework or you don't need, talk about things like Lodash is super helpful, but if you don't need that whole package, think about that and like be be thoughtful about when to use them. They're great. Use that tooling and libraries that are there, but don't overload your site or application with every library. It, that, that is going to cost you in the performance side of things. I don't want to be the JavaScript hipster, but <laughs> I did say it in Tech Talk two years ago. 
that not enough people are focusing on it's it's the amount of javascript we're loading it has to parse all that and then it executes it and people just don't think about that they're like well i want to use ids because they're a slightly faster selector than classes and like just like over optimizing in the wrong direction and it's just like well you're shipping down an entire angular core and all these things when you just don't need and I'm glad you brought that up because just not enough people think about what they're shipping down. If you just strip that out, it speeds up the page in like multiple directions. Yeah, or doing band-aids for things like, oh, the bundle size is giant, but they're like, what if we server-side render? And you're like, wait, but then it's going to be like the uncanny valley weirdness where it's like there, but it's not really there. Um, So like not getting at root cause. That's a great point. That pattern of like server-side rendering and then hydrating the experience is sometimes like pitched as like the solution, right, for solving everything. And it can make things so much worse a lot of the time. And more complicated, too. And more complicated. I mean, sometimes, and I I guess we did a case study about this recently with Netflix, right? Like um, sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, is a lot of JavaScript on the client side actually adding real value to the experience? Sometimes there, it's okay to quarantine JavaScript to the server and then you know do stuff client side when it's actually going to add value. Um, I know that you know Netflix. Uh, we talked about you know in in the case study we did switching over to server side rendering with React right for the um, core uh, logged out homepage and then you prefetch the bundles for the rest experience right? Yeah, yeah. We were. I mean, we've server side rendered our React components fairly early on when we were leveraging React. And yeah, we had pages like first off for a like logged out homepage, like you said, there weren't a lot of interactions happening. They're very, very minimal. And, but we're shipping down React library and those client side component interactions. And the interactions were very small and we're like, wait, we don't need React on this page. Yes, we have the components that are server side rendered, but we'll get our markup for that. And then we wrote some vanilla JavaScript for the small interactions and some logging. So that was great. We reduced the bundle size by like half just by removing React at that point. But we're not going to, we still don't want to get rid of React. Like React does a lot of great things. And the rest of our signup flow or even our logged in pages are a single page application using React. We're not going to get rid of that. And so we just were like, okay, why don't we not use React on that landing page? And then in behind the scenes, well, let's fetch that React library and then it's actually cached in behind the scenes for the next sequence of pages. And yeah, we actually saw a lot of benefit doing that. And it, it's just a simple thought that actually came from one of the engineers, Tony Edwards, on our team. And it was like almost so simple that you're like, yeah, that could actually work. And yeah, just just thinking about that and we did that. And of course, people were like, well, why not use Preact? It's smaller. Yeah, you can do that. But there's complications to that too. Is it you know, you're missing some pieces of the library for React, but also we're already doing this with React. This is not like we had to rewrite server-side rendering. This, these components were already there. It was it was something that we could just try and it worked. So that was, that was a good one. And yes, great case study too. Thanks. I'll take full credit for that as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're the one who wrote it. So <laughs> I think that, you know, one of, one of the funny responses to, to that that I'd heard was a lot of people saying, you know, duh, it's a static page or a simple page. Why would you ever use client-side JavaScript on it? But it's not always that obvious. No, and and there's there's still interactions on it that were necessary for client-side JavaScript. It just, we didn't necessarily need a framework. And that may change over time too, is like the page may become more complicated where now we're at odds of like, when do you add it back and like leverage it? Where does it become too much of a pain point to write vanilla JavaScript and not take advantage of React as the framework. So there's always going to be at odds of that is like, 
the developer happiness and support of being able to ship things quickly, but also have a performant page. So everything's a trade-off. I think like, especially in the web development world, it's really hard for us because it's like this cognitive dissonance because we're like, oh, performance. Webpack has like great plugins or Parcel or some sort of tree shaker. And like, we're always quick to look at these tools or like some sort of magical thing to help us with performance. But at the end of the day, the fastest page, like first load, no cache is an HTML page with vanilla JavaScript. Like nothing's going to beat that. Oh, probably maybe ever. even with no JavaScript. We, or no JavaScript. Yeah. But like, we always forget that because we're yeah. like, I want to code my way around this. But sometimes it's taking out the code like you referred to earlier. It's just like sending down a simple HTML page because, you know, HTML works. It has a lot of like great built-ins that you don't actually need JavaScript for. Or like CSS and JS stuff. Like we're using that because it's really great for developer happiness. But there's an option on the table that we rip it out because CSS is just more performant natively, and we are that is an option on the table um, to get the best performance possible. Yeah, I think one thing that's useful for uh, for other developers to consider is like weighing what the cost of your developer experience choices is going to have on the end user experience because ultimately it's the users that matter right yeah it's not us as developers it's like we all like using the latest and greatest like jem said let's jump on webpack because that seems cool and everything but at the end of the day we need to remember why are we creating this who's using it if no one's using it there's no point in creating it exactly it's a hard question i'm glad you brought it up what's the balance between performance and developer experience because like we're not writing websites in c even though, I mean, I guess we could probably. You probably could, but it wouldn't be very fun. Or, well, right. it'd, be, it'd be not even fun. That's the wrong word. It'd be difficult. It'd be interesting. Sure. Not <laughs> In air quotes. In air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm air quoting. It's <laughs> a great pod. But um, there is a balance between performance and developer ergonomics. And like we can over-optimize. Let's write everything in vanilla JavaScript. However, frameworks exist for a reason to make our lives a bit easier. So where does that balance lie? I think frameworks definitely have a place and they generally in many cases help us build experiences quicker. But it's important for us to understand like if if you are setting a performance budget, for example, how much of that budget is being eaten up by that framework? And long term, are you going to be able to fit in as much of the application logic, the site logic that's needed to deliver that user experience? Um, you know, how are you going to do that without kind of blowing your budgets, without like uh, going low on all of your metrics? Um, I think that uh, it's a hard trade-off, right, to make. Sometimes people are going to say, well, it doesn't matter that I'm shipping megabytes of JavaScript because we were the first ones to the market. We shipped all the features, right? But you might have competitors that are able to achieve the same thing. might mean that uh, folks that are on 3G networks, slower networks, uh, poorer hardware are going to be able to you know, load up their experiences quicker than yours. But at the end of the day, it's trade-offs. The business has to make a call on what they think is the most important thing to do. So Addy, too, since you're working on Chrome, I'm interested, like, what are some uh, new APIs, new platform APIs that we can be looking forward to around performance? Uh, Let's see. So um, a quick reminder of things that have existed for a while, but people are still Actually, that could be new, actually, to some people. (laughs) Maybe that's useful, too. Um, For first load, uh, especially if you're building an application that uh, relies quite heavily on JavaScript, um, take a look at things like link rel preload. Great for just making sure that your fetches for things that are really, really critical um, get made by the browser early on. Um, If you care about the the next page experience, link rel prefetch, Use service workers for those things as well. Again, Netflix is already ahead of the curve. You're using some of that stuff. And I mean, some of those are very easy to implement. Like, that's the beauty of them, too. Like, it's not a hard thing to implement. Not a hard thing to implement or test that it has an impact around. Um, Stuff that is more future-facing. At the moment, we're looking at uh, things like, you know, 
Uh, how can we build up a more open web story around things like AMP? And uh, you know, uh, some of the standards that we're looking at in that space are things like you know, web packaging. So uh, if you're an origin and you're cool with you know, some third-party CDN serving your content, but you want to make sure that the attribution is still with your original URL, uh, we want to come up with a way so that you can use the origin can sign that content and say, well, hey, this actually came from me. This actually came from like Netflix or Atlassian or, or, uh, or whatever. Um, but the content can still be served from the CDN. Now, that's a model we think could be interesting to some folks. Um, so we're accomplishing that through an effort called web packaging. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next year. Um, we're also looking at ways uh, that multi-page applications, like often these days, like people will go straight for single-page apps because they'll feel like, hey, you get that that nice <laughs> instant navigation to another route. Right? And it's cool to write. <laughs> it's cool to write. <laughs> we're looking at how you know how can we enable some of the benefits of that model without you having to write an SPA every single time. So there's a, a very emerging proposal called portals that we're looking at. They're a little bit like an iframe, but the the core idea behind a portal is. What if you know you click on a link and we're able to kind of make a frame become the top frame that's seen instead of it being a child? Like, what if it became the top frame uh, in a way that you can control like the transitions around it, the animations, and everything? Um, it's a new capability. We're still trying to figure out the UX around it, but we think that could be a powerful way for multi-page apps to get some of the benefits that SPAs have today. Um, again, a lot of stuff's experimental. Uh, I'm excited about WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be a use case for a lot of people. We just you're just not running that intensive JavaScript. However, I think there are cases like video players or photo editing, or music editing, like that have really really powerful connotations for uh, WebAssembly, and that's developing really quickly. Uh, another one that's kind of stayed off people's radar a bit is uh, it's from Mozilla and Facebook. It's binary JavaScript, so it's sending down the bytecode of JavaScript to execute like a little bit faster. Uh, they've been working on that for a while, and I don't really know the status of it, but I'm pretty excited about to see how that comes out versus WebAssembly. They could just be two com different things. Um, that's that's really interesting stuff. I think the interesting thing with WebAssembly, too, is it kind of gets into, this, like like you said it really well, of like music editing, photo editing. You're now thinking more like deep application and so like on thinking on like our mobile apps or desktop apps there now we're having to like we can actually move this to the web and create these crazy applications that are in the browser which is pretty powerful i'm really excited to see what WebAssembly is going to hold for gaming on the web and whether that that's going to finally yeah. like bring proper you know gaming experiences i think there are lots of interesting challenges there like we're talking about performance uh and keeping things fast Nobody said fast for a while. I know, oh, I know. Yeah. I, was, I was just like, well done. We needed that. Cheers. Well, Jem said it twice. We just didn't call it out. Oh, wow. I didn't even notice. Faster. Uh, well, we should have called them out. But uh, I think we're going we're gonna to have to figure out that interesting challenge of like, are we okay with people shipping megs and megs worth of a game down the wire? How do we do that efficiently? Yeah, that's a tough one. And then you could get back to the days we're almost creating like Flash. You could have like the loading screen and you're like just waiting. You know, but there's always, there was always some fun animation, but it was like you were downloading the whole piece and, and that, could be, that could be pretty problematic. We could just go back to Flash. We should go back to the last loading screens. Please wait, loading. <laughs> yes, this is going to be awesome. I think the the spec for HTTP three has been released, or it's like uh, getting more standardized, which is really exciting because HTTP two actually has a fairly expensive handshake, and HTTP three tends to do away with that. It's more like um, 
it's a very different way of thinking about the internet. It's more UDP, less TCP. Sorry if we're getting too technical, but it's like, it's really fascinating on the kind of the future of what um, data transmission is going to look like uh, over the web. And I think Google's part of that, actually. Google's a part of it. I think there's still, there are still lots of things around uh, HTTP2 that we still, still need to get right. Uh, over the last uh, week, we've discovered that HTTP2 prioritization is something that still needs a little bit of work on a number of different hosting providers and CDNs. Um, so, uh, Props to folks like uh, Andy Davies and Patrick Meenan who've been looking into that space. But uh, apparently, we're not we're not getting all of the the juice we could out of H two because prioritization is busted at the moment. So uh, opportunities to fix that. We briefly mentioned like performance budgets and kind of talked about that. We didn't really define what that means or is it something that teams should be investing in? How do you approach that? Like, how do you even figure that out for your team? So a performance budget is a constraint that you set and your team is supposed to try remaining within those constraints in order to continuously deliver on um, an experience that uh, is performant. Uh, the way teams can go about setting that are are varied. Like some folks will take a look at, you know, uh, what is our current bottleneck? Like if, you, if you've got an, ex an existing site uh, or experience, like how well are we doing on Lighthouse or other tools at the moment on those metrics? Setting yourself a budget that is like 10 seconds faster than you uh, are currently is just not going to work. You're gonna yeah, you're wet. actually setting up for, yeah, for poor, yeah. poor yeah, performance at that point. <laughs> cheers. Ideally, what you want is uh, to be setting your team goals that are achievable around budgets. You want to leave yourself a little bit of space so to be able to hit those. To give you an example of where this this can go wrong, and I'll apologize to Paul Irish in advance. Uh, over on the <laughs> over on the Lighthouse team, we set a performance budget for Lighthouse itself, and as soon as we hit that budget, we just increase the budget. Which <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one way of doing it. <laughs> this is one way of doing it. I think that like a lot of teams that I've seen adopt budgets end up in that place where like unless the organization, the business, and the engineering team heavily buy into this idea, it becomes so appealing to just increase it. And then it almost becomes meaningless, right? So there's still a little bit of work we have to do around uh, figuring out how to make sure the budgets are doing what they're supposed to. It's hard to if you have a budget and the, let's say you have like a component-based UI architecture and some other team owns that component and like they deliver you the new version, you upgrade to it, it puts you over the budget, but you don't have necessarily a lot of influence or power to be like, hey, you're over our budget, you yep. better change that. So that gets tricky. Yeah, definitely as your organization's larger and your teams are bigger, it, it's a lot harder to do. That definitely can be a problem. I mean, I feel like you should just fail to build then. Like just don't allow it in. I think tying it to real business metrics is really important because in that case you can be like, Every second is costing us $100 million. And in that case, like people then realize, oh crap, like we should actually listen to the engineers on this point and get our get the performance back up. And I think by doing that too, it allows you to change the budget in an educated way. If you're changing the UI in, in such a way that you get such a great business impact from it, but it happens to be heavier because you have better interactions or more information, then you have to increase the budget because it, it is helping the business. But there's only one way to make that decision. Business metric? Business metric. <laughs> <laughs> no. And also knowing your audience, it's not enough to say like, oh, I'm in San Francisco, my website, my 10 megabyte website loads in three seconds, cool. High fives all the round, we're going out for drinks. But you know, someone in like Sudan, that your 10 megabyte site isn't loading fast at all. Did you account for them? Are they your Cheers. audience? Cheers. Yes, <laughs> Cheers. I'm on it today. <laughs> I'm on it now. <laughs> so knowing your audience for your performance budgets is really important because you're like, oh, it loads fast to my local network. Cool. 
that's not what the rest of the world feels. So before we jump into picks, I'm interested in kind of wrapping up the topic by talking about what are some good resources for learning more about web performance and techniques. Obviously, pulling up Lighthouse is a really great start. What are some things that people can do to think about performance budgets to really impact their team with better tooling and infrastructure? Uh, I'll give a shout out to a site we we just launched at Chrome Dev Summit called web.dev. Uh, this is our first developer platform that is uh, entirely centered around Lighthouse. So the idea is that you take a tooling-driven approach to understanding what are your bottlenecks, and then we customize the guidance that you're given based on what your real bottlenecks are for your site. Um, and the hope is that like, you can track that over time. And if, for example, you regress on something like your JavaScript performance or images, we then tell you, hey, well, now it's time for you to take a look at our code splitting guidance or something like that. So I um, Web.dev is a good place to check out. We also have guidance around um, performance budgets in there. So if folks want to use something like Lighthouse and continuous integration, we've got a guide about that on there, some other stuff you can check out. I'm personally a huge fan of case studies. So um, the Netflix one was one. But in general, like, what are real things like real teams are doing to improve their performance? Because there are generally like really nice nuggets in there around the process they use, the tooling they used. I get a lot of value out of things like bundle analysis. I think right there too, as I want to say, is even just talking to other engineers and actually going back to like, yes, there's a lot of tools, but we are tools as well as like, go talk to other engineers and other people facing these problems and say, what have you found that works? Like, how did you approach it? And and that's why I think I love your case studies for that, Addy, is because you're surfacing that as like, here's something that worked. It may not work for everyone, but here's a thought and like, think about how maybe this could apply to your company or your work that you're doing and, and just getting people talking and thinking about that. And like things like Twitter are great for that. Just ask others and like get responses and, you know, anything like that to me is just really asking others and seeing what can happen. I'll say uh, Perf Matters, the conference last year, um, the closing talk by Paul Irish was fantastic because he goes over like a bunch of metrics we talked about, but even in way more detail. But overall, there's a lot of good talks there on um, perceived performance. Like when you have a loading screen, what what's the best kind of loading screen? What, what actually makes the user think something's happening better? Um, overall, there's something there for everybody. So um, I recommend it. And Perf Matters 2019 is coming up pretty soon. Yeah, when is it? Uh, I want to say March 3rd. Yeah. I forget. Are you speaking there? I, I am speaking there. Oh, yeah. I should probably know <laughs> there, there is a March, natural plus. Addy just slid me 100 to mention that. So. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? That's March or April. It's sometime next year. We'll check it out. <laughs> At the end of each episode, we like to choose picks uh, that we'd like to share, found interesting, that we'd like to share with our listeners. Uh, let's go around the table and share today's picks. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. Um so this is probably an answer to the last question, but it's also a pick. I'm going to, my first pick is React Profiler. Um, that was released in React 16.5. So if you are using React to develop your site, um, we've been doing a lot of performance work uh, on Bitbucket recently, and that tool has been phenomenal for finding out, you know, is is this component re-rendering way too many times? Why is it re-rendering too many times? Um, and how fast is it re-rendering? What's the, you know, the millisecond count on that? Um, so it's a really cool tool. So definitely recommend that. Um, and then my second pick is a song called Daydream by Shelf Nunny. Um, sort of a <laughs> funny name for uh, a, a, a musical uh, outfit. 
but uh, it's a nice dreamy sort of electronic pop song and I like it a lot. Awesome. Mars, what do you have? I think I only have one today. I was just traveling um, and I really like the Lonely Planet guidebooks uh, if anyone is looking for a new travel guidebook. But what I didn't realize and that I totally geeked out over when I found out about it was they also have an app that you can download. Um, and you, when you do that, you can also download the offline map for the area that you're visiting, um, which is really interesting. So, you know, if you're kind of out and about in a neighborhood you don't really know very well, you can just, you know, see what's near you, especially if you're hungry. That's me. Um, <laughs> to find out what's close by and, and kind of like recommended by locals. So if you're if you're looking for something that works well offline, so it's very performant, I would recommend the Lonely Planet uh, guide app. Does it work fast? Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Jeb, what do you have? Uh, for my first pick, I'm going to pick my Valley Silicon pick, which is... My pick where I pick things that are just ridiculous and should not exist, but they only exist because people in Silicon Valley have too much money. First pick is a startup called Yoshi. I, I am guilty of it. I, I just used it the other day because like, I'm not above saying I live in Silicon Valley and guilty of being bougie. Um, but it is a startup that will come to your work or house and fill up your gas for you. And I know most of the people <laughs> listening is like, that's not a real chore. <laughs> for me, it is because I have to leave work early to fill up. Otherwise, I get caught in traffic on the way home, which in the Bay Area is substantial. Anyways, uh, it is a startup that comes to your uh, work and will fill up your gas for you, wash your car for you, all these things that people probably are like shaking their heads like why does this exist exactly this is valley silicon my second pick is a movie on netflix it's by the coen brothers just got released it's called the ballad of buster scruggs uh it's about five or six short tales but they're really well done and you kind of take away whatever you want from it there's no like overarching moral tale they don't connect in any way it's just you kind of get from it what you get from it, it it's worth watching kind of just to see how you feel about it but i love I, coen I, brothers films too they're so good every one of their their movies is awesome they're very dark though that it, it kind of it's not ha ha funny it's like <laughs> dark <laughs> 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 that's a good way to describe it that's the end of that sentence <laughs> all right addy what do you have picks for our listeners what do i have picked um my pick is uh, my first pick is uh, something that Gem and I have got in common. Uh, this is uh, a Netflix show called The Great British Bake Off. Yeah. Oh, and they just came out with new episodes. There is new episodes. There are new episodes. Yeah. Um, I will apologize to my wife, Elle, because it is all I've been watching for the last four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it took you four weeks. It took me two days. <laughs> I haven't been binge watching enough. Ah, oh, there you go. I think my other pick is uh, a tool uh, called the Chrome User Experience uh, Report Dashboard. If uh, if you're someone that cares about some of the metrics we talked about today, but you don't currently measure them in the field, uh, the Chrome User Experience Report Dashboard uh, allows you to just like drop in your URL. Uh, we'll actually give you a customized dashboard showing you uh, metrics like first contentful paint for in the field. You can get a feel for uh, you know whether the metrics you're seeing in the lab are the same ones people are experiencing. That's really cool. Ryan, what do you have? So in an attempt to redeem myself from my last book pick that fell flat on Jem. Um, <laughs> I thought Jem was into it. I was, the, I'm reading no, the, we're the both reading Infinite. at the same time. Oh, okay. No, the book, I, I picked the book Infinite last oh, yeah, time, and yeah, that yeah. one did not, not work out. Um, so my first pick is a book called All Systems Red. Um, it's the first entry in a series called The Murderbot Diaries. And it's a novella. It's a short book. It's probably only 120, 130 pages. Um, it moves really fast, but it's really, really good. Um, so so I, I have read that. Uh, I, think, I think you told me about it. Or maybe I just found it organically. Uh, it is fantastic, and it's very short. I was, I was expecting a different <laughs> response. What is it about? What is it about? It's about a... In the future, there are sentient robots 
they're programmed to do certain things. Like um, this one is programmed to guard people on a planet. However, it overrode its programming at some point, but it's faking that it's still like in the system. Um, it's worth reading. It's very short, so if you're not into it, you'll you'll yeah, be the book out of kind it of goes fast. over how this hacked robot um, kind of evolves as a person and starts developing feelings and emotions for other humans and becomes more human in the process. So it's it's a really good book. Um, and my second pick is this new feature I got on my Pixel phone called call screening, and it is the coolest thing ever. So when I get a call now, I can tap a little button that says screen call. And an AI will pick up the call and say, hey, this person's screening their calls. Can you leave a quick message and tell them why they should pick up? And then it translates it in real time. And you can see on your phone what they're calling for. And then you can choose to pick up or deny it. And it is the coolest thing ever. Oh, that's so cool. That is a pretty bad one. I've used it. It's very useful. Addy, did you you do that as well? I I take credit for that as well. Good work. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I love it. (laughs) All right. I actually have three picks. Uh, One I've just thrown in because Addy's talked about the Netflix case study. I feel like, Addy, you did such an amazing job. We definitely need to call that one out as a pick. Um, It's a great article. I highly recommend checking that one out. It goes into more depth about some of the things that we were talking about today on the episode. And then I actually chose, for anyone who's into photography, I chose a app for, I believe it's for iOS and Android. It's called PhotoPills. If you want to nerd out on like when the right time is for like sunsets and like angles and everything like this app goes in so much depth of like the right lighting and everything i highly recommend checking that one out it's called photo pills and then i have a netflix original that i've chosen that i don't know if gem will like it but i really don't care um is uh it's called final table it came out recently the way i want to sell you on it is it's if you've watched chef's table it's like chef's table meets iron chef and Basically, it's a competition of chefs creating like dishes that they would normally never create. They have to do it in an hour. It's interesting. It's like something I put on the background. It's uh, it's been a good show. Check it out and and let me know what you think. I disagree strongly. <laughs> you know what? So don't don't it's listen so to Jem. Jem watched one episode. When he's seen at least three, then we can talk. But like fair, he's fair. only watched one episode. I wasn't sold on it in the first episode. It took me a couple to get into it, but I, I have enjoyed it the like cinematography on it like the photos everything is beautiful like it's really really well done the va- high quality i originally thought you were going to say iron fist and i thought <laughs> it's going to be chef's iron yeah shifts fighting would you be chef. more sold on that because I, I would i think that would I be would. a lot cooler is like some martial arts cooking and yeah all right well thank you so much addy for joining us I, we really appreciate you uh coming on and talking about web performance with us uh where can people get in touch with you uh twitter is a great place to check out uh, i'm at addy osmani on twitter feel free to drop me a line if you care about webperf want to chat about it right on thanks so much and thank you all for listening to today's episode make sure to subscribe to front end happy hour podcasts on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on and you can also check us out on twitter at front end hh any last fast words cheers <laughs> cheers, cheers. cheers.